turn to the book of Colossians with me this morning. It's page 983 there in your pew Bible. Look at Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23 this morning. And let me pray for us. Lord, even as our thoughts have been directed to you this morning, we pray even more so that as we hear your word read and as we hear it preached, that you would take our wandering minds and that they would, you would fix them on our Savior, that you would take our hearts, which are too often cold or lukewarm, you would make them white hot for our Savior. Give us ears to hear, give us souls that are receptive for your glory and for your praise. In Christ's name, amen. Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23 this morning. This is the holy and errant word of God. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, we have three verses to examine this morning, verse 21, verse 22, and verse 23, and coincidentally, I have three points. They will correspond to the three verses. Verse 21 tells us what we were by nature apart from Christ. Verse 22, what we are by grace in Christ. And verse 23, what we must continue to be. So what we were, what we are, and what we must continue to be. Verse 21 begins with an emphatic opening where Paul at the very outset says, and you. He does so because if you look back to verse 20, in verse 20 he was just speaking about the cosmic effects of Christ's death upon the cross. And Paul doesn't want these Colossians to miss this. He doesn't want them to miss that this message is for them, even as he's talking about the cosmic implications of Christ's death. So he says, and you, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing even evil deeds, he has now reconciled. It's great to talk about reconciliation in a cosmic way, but Paul is reinforcing to them that the ultimate reason that Christ seeks reconciliation is for them. Paul begins with what 
the Colossian Christians were by nature apart from Christ and by implication what we were. Our first point, what we were. If you ask the average person in our society today, probably here in America, is people that are born into this world, each one of us born into this world, are we more good or are we more evil? Are we basically good or are we basically evil? And I think most people that you would ask that question of would say that humans are basically good. They would probably say that the heinous crimes and the injuries that men do to one another can be explained by weaknesses and individuals becoming exacerbated or outside influences leading a person astray or maybe growing up in the wrong environment or the fact that someone has seized power and power corrupts. But most would say that on the whole, people prefer good rather than evil. People choose good rather than evil. Deep down in their heart, people are basically good. The scriptures would say that that is not the case. It's just the opposite. Paul says here that the Colossians, and by extension us, were alienated and hostile in mind. This is what you were, alienated or estranged from God. This is the effect of Adam's sin in the garden for all of us, for all of us. Sin didn't just disrupt our relationship with God, it jettisoned it. It destroyed it. Sinful man is without God in this world. As foreign as light is to darkness. Alienated. The word that Paul uses here has the idea of something that is continual, that's pervasive. It's not just that we were without God for a moment or a few moments, but as we are born into this world, it is a life without God. lack communion with Him. We live apart from Him. We see this effect immediately in the Garden of Eden after Adam eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When Adam and Eve, when they take a bite of that fruit, they hide themselves from God in the bushes. Alienation. Prior to their eating of that fruit, they were walking with God in the, in the cool of the day. But now they, they take one bite all gone. That intimate fellowship that they enjoyed, even friendship, when that bite was taken, that relationship was taken away, alienated. It's even more than that as a result of the fall. Paul says we were hostile in our minds towards God, doing evil deeds. It's not just that we were separated from God and a little apathetic towards Him. We we absolutely detest Him. We don't come into this world with some kind of neutral mind that just has to develop and grow and mature and learn, and then that mind somehow makes up a decision about whether it loves God or it hates God. No, we are born into this world hating God. Opposed to Him. Hostile in mind to him. 
Deep down, there is what Paul says in another text, enmity towards him, true hatred. We resist him and his truth and his claim upon our lives. Try and put this more starkly. Here at URC, one of the things I love is that we have, seems like a new child born every week into this family here at URC. It's in the water. It's wonderful, all these little cute babies that are in mother's arms here each and every week. You get to meet a new one. Look at all of these cute little babies. They hate God. Hate God hostile towards God. It's what we were by nature, all of us. When Adam fell, we fell with him and in him. His sin became our sin. His mind of rebellion became our mind of rebellion. And that hostile mind leads to evil deeds. We are filled. We are dominated. We're we're wrapped up with sin. Romans, Paul says that there is no one who does good. No, not even one. Not one. There's an online Christian satire site called the Babylon Bee. I don't endorse everything that they post, but they do have a pretty good sense of humor. Sometimes, though, a little extreme, I think. But I saw this recently. They ran a story entitled this. Woman finally accepts doctrine of total depravity now that her daughter is two. This is, this is the little story. New York, New York. Mary Eastwood, 29, says she struggled for years to accept the biblical teaching that human beings are innately corrupted by sin, preferring instead to think that people are basically good. However, now that her daughter Charlotte is right in the prime of her terrible twos, Eastwood has changed her mind, fully embracing and even espousing the doctrine of total depravity. Quote, I had the hardest time coming to grips with the idea that all the people I see around me are marred by sin and without hope, but for the grace of God, the young mother told reporters. But now that Charlotte is too, oh boy, that innate depravity is shining through with the brightness of a thousand suns. Noting that her daughter, though small and cute, some days leaves her and her husband weeping in despair, Eastwind went on to say that no one in their right mind could handle a toddler for any amount of time and come out on the other end thinking human beings are basically good. She's like a Category 5 hurricane with a cute face, Eastwood told reporters. I love her to death, but wherever she is, darkness and destruction reign. And they closed with this. At publishing time, Eastwood was inviting an unbelieving friend to come to her house so Charlotte could convince her of mankind's radical corruption and desperate need for a savior. Our bodies carry out the convictions of our minds. Maybe our own reluctance to acknowledge this biblical truth or even being offended by it is the greatest evidence that this is indeed true. In the 18th century, the famous evangelist and preacher George Whitfield had a friend by the name of Lady Huntington, and Lady Huntington had a friend who was the Duchess of Buckingham. And Lady Huntington decided to invite the Duchess of Buckingham to one of George Whitfield's preaching engagements. And the Duchess of Buckingham wrote a reply back to the Lady of Huntington refusing to attend, and she said this. 
It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting. And I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. It's true of the wretches in the gutter, as the Duchess would say. But we of noble birth are not so sinful. We are not so wicked. And the Scriptures would say to the Duchess and to each of us, we were all wretches born in the gutter. It is true of humanity as a whole, and it is true of each of us individually. That is what we were by nature. And because there is such hostility in our minds and actions as sinners against God, there is no peace. No, there's raging conflict. We have this need of reconciliation with God. Let's fill out the picture a little bit more. We should not think or draw the false conclusion that all the hostility in our relationship with God is simply on our side. The New Testament not only points out that we have hostility towards God that needs to be removed for there to be reconciliation, but that God has hostility towards us that needs to be removed for reconciliation. Now, His hostility is right and just, whereas whereas ours is sinful, but hostility reigns on both ends of the relationship or lack thereof because there is a complete and an utter breakdown in our relationship with God to the result of sin, that there is no functional relationship. Again, if we turn back to Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they hid themselves from God, but, but you know, the conclusion of the fall there in Genesis 3 doesn't end with them hiding themselves from God. If you, if you go to the last verse of chapter 3, that seminal chapter in Genesis, the last words are this in that chapter, he, meaning God, he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree tree of life, God drove out man, he drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, and so began the rest of human history, no longer in fellowship with God. And not only because man was opposed to God, but because God was opposed to sinful man. God expels Adam and Eve from the garden. Why? Because holiness can have nothing to do with iniquity, with sin. The prophet Habakkuk said of God, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. He can't even look upon it. So Adam and Eve, they... They're driven out. God is holy. And He will uphold His standard of righteousness. He cannot part from it any more readily than the sun can be parted from light. He is righteous. He's holy. So He drives sinful man from His presence. And God's holiness is symbolized in the cherubim with their flaming swords standing in front of the entrance to the Garden of Eden so that none may come back in. As if to say that there's no entrance here for sinners. Notice the way is barred by God. There's hostility on both sides. 
But it's not only hostility that is on God's side in the equation. And here's the other reality about him casting Adam and Eve out in the garden. Again, we're told in verse in that last verse of Genesis 3 that God placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God is compelled to drive them out of the garden due to his hostility towards the sinner, but also out of love for the sinner. By barring the way, God is keeping Adam and Eve, fallen Adam and Eve from the tree of life, and it's an act of love. Tree of life, it's referenced a number of times throughout the scriptures, but it will reappear again in Revelation 22 in heaven. And there we're told that this heaven, in heaven, this tree of life, that it produces fruit every month of the year, seemingly so that we can partake of it, so that we can eat from it. And that tends to be the case because there in Revelation 2, when John writes to the church in Ephesus, he says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life symbolizes eternal life. It is sacramental. The fruit was to serve as a sign and a seal confirming holiness and confirming everlasting life. And had Adam not eaten from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would have partaken of the fruit of the tree of life as he entered into that perfect state with God. No longer seeing corruption, but entering glory and possessing a life without any threat of imperfection, just complete holiness and righteousness. It, it would have signified and sealed to them by eating that fruit of the tree of life that all of this was there. Now that they were sinners, the tree of life becomes for them a curse. Because eating of it would have sealed them in a state of unrighteousness and damnation forever. God is not only banishing them because he must protect the garden as hostile towards sin, but also because he is gracious. He's protecting them. His grace is evident even in casting them out. For neither can God deny that he is love. We could once again have fellowship with God. The account of the garden clearly informs us that, that it can't come from us. The way is barred. There's no way in. The flaming sword protects the entrance. We can't approach him. Paul wants us to know that this level of alienation and hostility marked our relationship with God or lack thereof because we are sinners. But the whole purpose of informing the Colossians of what they were was so that they might more revel and appreciate what they now are by God's amazing grace. Our second point, what we are. What we were by nature was damnable. What we are by grace would be unbelievable. If it wasn't told to us by the trustworthy eternal word of God. Verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
And you, you who were separated from God, haters of God, he reconciled. We were told what we were apart from Christ so that we might more appreciate what we are now in Christ. Think of that destitute state we were in apart from Christ. We're alienated, hostile, working against God. What's the solution? How do we ever get out of this eternal mess? Cast out of the garden and flaming sword that is blocking our way. We can't even approach God. Paul says, here's the answer. Look at the pronouns in verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He, his, him. Here is the answer. God. the majesty of the gospel. The grieved one, the the offended party, takes the initiative to reconcile, but not simply the initiative. He accomplishes the whole of our salvation. He leaves nothing undone. Hostility needed to be removed that there might be reconciliation, that there might be peace. And so it is done in the only possible way. By Him. does not sit back. He doesn't wait for man to approach him. Yet we're the offender. The the disruption and the fellowship is on our side. We committed the sin. The ability to reconcile is not on our side. He doesn't look for us to take the first tentative apologizing step towards reconciliation with him. Because we never will. Because we can't. Your neighbor can't. I can't. You can't. It's not in us. It is impossible. So the grieved creator does the absolutely unfathomable. The offended God, the Lord of lords, the Holy One, moves towards us. He decrees, He acts, He accomplishes all that is necessary for our reconciliation, that we might have peace. There might be peace between a holy God and sinful man. How? How how does God affect this reconciliation? Of course, we have seen how God already loved us and being gracious already in the garden, but he did not reconcile us simply by moving from love to forgiveness of sins. Some will argue that for God to truly be love, for him to truly be gracious, he must move from love to forgiveness of sins, to forgiving us. That is an error. God cannot act contrary to his own nature. God will not forsake his own righteousness even to save sinners. So he cannot move directly from love to forgiveness of sins. Now he must uphold justice even as he exercises grace and forgiveness. So here's the amazing reality. The fact that rattles the cosmos with incredulity and astonishment. 
He, God, in the person of His Son, reconciles us in the body of His flesh by death, Paul says. Forgiveness, reconciliation, peace is purchased by His death. Verse 20, we're told that Christ made peace by the blood of His cross. Now we're told that our peace is purchased in His body of flesh by His death. And, and here we have both elements, don't we, of what we see in the Lord's table, as we'll come to it later this morning. And Paul is underscoring the fact and making it clear that Christ shed His own blood, that He died bodily. Just probably to undercut some teaching of these false teachers in Colossae who were arguing that Christ was not fully man or that He didn't actually die in His humanity. And Paul is correcting that grievous error that destroys the gospel. He's saying, no, the Son of God in His flesh bodily shed His blood and bodily died. This is absolutely essential because otherwise our salvation rests on a shaky foundation. But here we're on firm ground. Because our salvation is rooted and it's grounded in the historical fact that the Son of God bled and died for us. Reconciliation is assured, as assured as the Son of God is righteous, Paul is saying. But notice that it's, it's not sinners in general that are reconciled to God. It is only sinners in Christ. It is those in Christ who are reconciled to God because in Christ, God does not hold our sin against us. It's not that He doesn't have sin to hold against us, but in Christ, He doesn't hold it against us because it's no longer ours. Christ satisfies the wrath of God he removes the sin from all those who are in Him by faith. He, he took that debt and He paid the invoice in full. He has reconciled us in His body of flesh by His death. The price for our debt was His life. And it was paid, paid in full. And so easily... Speak about our salvation being free in Christ. Ah, that, that is a truth that should delight our souls and we should proclaim with a loud voice and we should sing from the rafters. Because it's true. It's only free on our side of the equation. Cost God greatly. For him to uphold his standard of righteousness and to forgive our sin required the perfect Son of God to become sin for us and receive our due penalty. We receive much from him who it costs much from. In fact, we receive all from him who it cost all. A reconciliation was not cheap. It was not mere triflings that bought us. It couldn't be because of what we were. Oh, that we might more appreciate what we were so that we might more rejoice in what we now are. So what are we now? 
Paul says we are holy, we're blameless, above reproach in Christ. No longer a sinner before God, but a friend. No longer alienated, but a, a son or a daughter. No longer hostile, but at peace. No longer condemnation, but commendation in Christ. That's gone. The sin is gone, the guilt is gone, the wrath aimed at us is gone, the hostility is gone, it's gone. I read a story years ago that illustrated this reality well. It was about a man in England who had gone across the English Channel to go to the continent for a vacation or holiday, as they say. And he packed his Rolls Royce on the boat going over and his Rolls Royce arrived there on the continent and he was driving around Europe in his Rolls Royce and something happened to the engine. And the Rolls Royce broke down and so he cabled the Rolls Royce people back in England and he asked this question, he said, I'm having trouble with my car, what do you suggest I do? Surprisingly, the Rolls Royce people, they flew a mechanic over mechanic came over and worked on the engine of the car and then left the man to complete his vacation and that mechanic flew back to England. And as you can imagine, the man began to wonder, wonder as he was going around Europe how much this was going to cost him that they had just flown this mechanic over for him. So when he got back from his vacation, he wrote a letter to the Rolls-Royce people asking them how much it was that he owed. And he received a letter from the office that read this. Dear sir, there is no record anywhere in our files that anything ever went wrong with a Rolls Royce. The record has been clear. There's no debt to be paid. Our sin to Christ. His holiness to us. It's amazing grace. And so the declaration from God is holy, blameless, above reproach. Even as Christ entered paradise, pass in front of that flaming sword so we can without fear, because as was said earlier in our service today, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None. struck this week with the language that Paul uses here as thinking about these words and one would think that Paul would have stopped by saying that we were holy and blameless. Doesn't that make sense? It's, it's more than sufficient. He died in order to present you holy and blameless before him. That, that'd be enough, Paul. But he doesn't stop there. He, he adds another, another word. Above reproach. The thought, and I was praying about this this week. I, I think he adds this just one more all encompassing word because some of us with overly introspective minds and constitutions would have said, Yes, holy and blameless. Yeah, I, I know that, surely, but the sin that I committed, it was so great or it was so grievous that it must have some impact upon me for all of eternity with God, before God. He will at least be a little disappointed in me. 
He will at least just, just chastise me. He won't damn me, but he, he, he will probably just chastise me a little bit. Christ, you're above reproach. Above it. Nothing held against you. And any sin you and I attempt to hold on to or we attempt to make restitution for, any guilt that we continue to rack ourselves with months and years and even decades after a sin was committed, it just makes a mockery of the cross. It's no longer yours. It's not yours. You're holy. Blameless. You're above reproach. That is who you are by grace in Christ. Which leads to our final point. Who we must continue to be. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You are presented holy and blameless and above reproach, Paul says, if you continue in the faith. Think about the context of this letter again and the false teachers are peddling a different kind of gospel and the Colossian Christians, they're wavering. And so Paul reminds them that the same gospel that they heard proclaimed has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And everywhere in all the earth, this, this truth is being preached and it is bearing fruit. And this truth, it doesn't change when it goes to different people or different cultures or different places. There is one faith, one gospel, one truth. The gospel doesn't change when it goes to people. It changes the people. So Paul's reminding them that this is the truth you seized upon. This is the gospel you heard and that you received and that you believed. So he issues this warning and encouragement that they continue in this faith. Don't stray off the path. Don't believe the other so-called gospels that you're hearing. Don't turn from the teaching you heard. Be steadfast, unmovable. Be loyal to what you heard preached concerning Christ. Be stable. Well established like a house upon a firm foundation, not shifting. Literally, do not be dissuaded, he says, from the hope that you have in Christ. Maybe their hope was diminishing as they listened to these false teachers going through the circumstances of life. Maybe they were beginning to believe what they were being told. Don't, Paul is saying. If you do, you, you lose it all. Before we begin to fall from the heights of the last verse into the abyss, we remind ourselves from other passages that once we are truly in Christ by faith, we cannot and we will not fall away from Christ. Our salvation is by grace alone. Christ says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who is given to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the hand of the father. Secure. And as we sing here at URC, Christ holds us fast. 
That even as he holds us, Paul was reminding the Colossians that we must endeavor to hold on to him. Even as it's true that those who are in Christ will be preserved by Christ to the end, so it's true that those who are in Christ will persevere in Christ to the end. Now friends, the, the greatest evidence that we are in Christ is that we finish the race. That we finish holding on to Him, gripping Him. Again, Paul has already in his prayer of chapter 1 said that he prayed that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. God preserves him, so he prays to God, he appeals to God, but now he also makes his appeal to them. That they must be persistent in holding on to the truth that they heard. And all of us, all of us in Christ, we need to hear both truths. Christ holds us. We have assurance, and you have to hold on to Christ. You need both. It's meant to stir you, shake you out of the doldrums. So what must we continue to be? By God's grace, we must be stable and steadfast, never shifting from the hope of the gospel. He promises to keep us to the end. transition to the table this morning, I just want to offer three quick applications to close. One stemming from each of these three points. What we were, what we are, and what we must continue to be. First, from what we were. As we in Christ come to the table this morning, the table humbles the Christian. When we look at the Lord's table and we see before us that bread and that wine, it is to remind us of how awful sin is. How horrific it is to God. That it is so awful that the only satisfaction that would reconcile us to God was the shed blood of His own Son. The only way. So when we come to the table as Christians, more than anywhere else, we should find ourselves humble. Second, from what we are, as we come to the table, the table encourages the Christian. Reconciliation with God, it, it rests on a sure foundation, not the flimsiness of our constitution or our resolve or our actions or our works or our affections or our emotions or our feelings, but the very righteousness of Christ. And it's symbolized to you at the table. It's signified and sealed to you at the table. And you look at the table and you, you see that bread and you see that wine and you are to be reminded that your debt has been paid in full. You stand upon a firm foundation. The righteous one who has given himself for you. You have so complete peace with God that you're able to pull up a table, a chair at his table and fellowship with him over a meal. That's the kind of peace you have. 
have no reason to fear, reason to feel defeated, and every reason to be filled with peace and joy and hope and love. Christians to be encouraged when they come to you. Finally, from whom we must continue to be. We come to the table, the Christian is reminded that we have not yet arrived. Not there yet. God knows it, and so He gives us this table as a sustenance for His children as we continue in this journey. He provides refreshment and He provides nourishment. Think about it like these people that provide for marathon runners. They provide those tents with glasses of water there along the way, and the, the marathoner runner, he, he's running along and he picks up that glass of, of fresh cold water and he drinks it and it just sustains him, just nourishes him just to go a little bit further. So the Lord provides for us. He nourishes us. He gives us the table this morning to, to encourage us along, just to, just to keep on going, keep on keeping on. Finish the race. As we look to Him, Reconciling God. As we long for that day when we too shall pass under the flaming sword and eat of the tree of life and enjoy eternal fellowship with Him face to face forever. It's promised to us in Christ. It's ours. We've been reconciled. From what we were to what we are is absolutely astounding. How that should make us long for what we shall be with Him forever. Let's pray. Lord our God, we are thankful that You are a reconciling God. We pray that if any of us in this room do not know peace with You, that You would work even now hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. For those of us that are in your Son, pray that we would live lives of true peace and joy and love and hope in your Son clinging to Him, even as He holds us. In Christ's holy name we pray.